gospel narrative of Mark, we've seen that Jesus has indeed indicted those religious leaders. He would say to them when he came into Jerusalem, there for uh, the feast of Passover, he would go to the temple, he would overturn the money changers' tables and drive out those who sold and, and doves and uh, sheep for the sacrifices. And he would indict those religious leaders by saying that you have made my father's house a den of thieves. And while teaching at the temple, he warned the people to beware of the religious elite. He would warn them concerning the Pharisees and beware of the scribes who in their long robes desire to draw attention to themselves. They have the best seats in the synagogues. They have the best places at the feast, but they devour widows' houses. And so these priests are are aware, as Mark indicates here, that time is really growing short for them. And they need to act in taking Jesus and putting him to death, that they might act, and, and we must act very soon, but we don't want to do it during the feast, as we read in the first couple of verses here. Lest there be an uproar by the people. And so it's interesting that the chief priests and the scribes, they do not fear God, but they do fear people. And the days of Passover, as most of you know, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that would follow, the, the feast here would bring many, many people into the city of Jerusalem. Matter of fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, would talk about that there was probably about two and a half million people flooding into the city of Jerusalem. The surrounding villages, such as Bethany and Bethpage, some of those villages there on the Mount of Olive, and they would come from all over the nation of Israel. They would come from Asia Minor. They would come from northern Africa. And the Passover would only be celebrated in Jerusalem. So the city would be very, very crowded from the people traveling to that holy city to celebrate the holy feast. And the religious leaders know that if they take Jesus here at the height of the feast, that it could have some very serious repercussions of starting an uproar, starting a riot of some sort, yet they have a deep sense of urgency to take him and to have him be put to death. And do you realize that is always the characteristic of hate? That is, hate can't wait. It's impatient. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that it is love, God's love, that is patience. But hatred must be acted upon as soon as the opportunity is given. And these religious leaders hated Jesus because he was a threat to their own position, to their own authority. Jesus came teaching a whole new way of living and thinking. In chapter 12, verse 37, it was the common people that heard him gladly. We know that Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus, that he has done all things well. And you see, here are the religious leaders coming to Jesus, asking him, by whose authority do you do these things? Who do you think that you are coming into the temple and upsetting what it is that we are doing here? Overturning the money changers' tables and driving out those sheep and those doves and and whose authority do you do these things? And Jesus indirectly would show them in telling a parable, the wicked vine dressers, that my authority comes from the Father. I am the Son whom you guys are going to kill. And it was the religious leaders that they were doing their ministry, and I use that term loosely. They were doing their duties. The things that they were doing was from their own authority. And so they tried to appear to be righteous in all spiritual, but they would rule over the people very heavy-handedly, and they would not care about the people. They didn't shepherd the people. They didn't have concern for them. 
And Jesus has been teaching in a way that would expose them and cut through their hypocrisy and showed what liars that they were. So here are the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Herodians and the scribes. They're out to get Jesus, and they're doing it in secrecy. But, of course, we know that Jesus, he, he knows what's going on. Jesus is the one that has set the hour that he's going to be delivered up. In John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, he would say, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. So Jesus, he's the one that is really in control. These religious leaders think that they're the ones that are in control. But Jesus, remember this, went to the cross freely. He went willingly. He's the one that had established the hour that he would go, him and the Father. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so the one day that the priests wanted to avoid, that was the feast day, the day of Passover, Jesus came to fulfill his mission as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He came that he might fulfill all the symbolism of the Passover lamb in Egypt. It was important that he be crucified on the day of the Passover, which he was. And on that day that the religious leaders wanted to avoid, Jesus would be crucified. And thus he would be the fulfillment of that whole Passover feast. So today, as Passover is observed, no longer do we just remember God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt, but we as Christians, we remember God's deliverance of his people. That is you and I that have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He has delivered us out of the bondage of the world, now bondage of sin, through the Lamb of God, who through his sacrifice takes away the sins of the world. They said not during the feast day, but Jesus had different plans in verse 3. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. And there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? So Jesus is in now that little village that is only a few miles from Jerusalem, Bethany. It's on the east side of the Mount of Olives, only about three or four miles from Jerusalem. And it's interesting that Jesus, during the feast, and when he came to Jerusalem, that the gospel narratives tell us that he would stay overnight on the Mount of Olives or stay in these little villages, Bethany, Bethpage was another one, but he never stayed the night in Jerusalem, God's holy city. And so there is Jesus in this village, uh, Bethany, and he's at Simon the leper. Obviously, Simon was one who was healed by the Lord because he had leprosy and he was healed. He's in his house. There were people around him. That's the ministry of our Lord is healing those who had leprosy. And Mark records that a woman comes in and anoints Jesus with some very costly ointment of spikenard. And she broke the box that it was in and poured it on his head. Now we know from John's gospel that this indeed was Mary. Mary, there's a lot of Marys in the New Testament and in the Gospels. This Mary was the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And Mary, as we see her in the Gospel stories, she's a very wonderful, very beautiful example of one who had devotion for the Lord, one who had a deep love for the Lord, one who was a worshiper of the Lord. Because oftentimes when we see her in the Gospels, where is she? She's at the feet of Jesus. 
We see that in Luke chapter 10, verse 39. We see her at Jesus' feet while her sister Martha was in the kitchen cooking. And Martha, being uptight and upset, said, Lord, tell my sister Mary to get up and get in here and help me. And Jesus would answer Martha. He would say, Martha, Martha. Whenever Jesus said your name twice, you knew that a correction was coming. So Martha, Martha, you're busy and troubled with many things. You're distracted, in other words. You're distracted with what it is that you're doing. But Mary has chosen the better thing. More important than service, it is better to be sitting, to be listening, to be worshiping, to be drawn close to, to be relating and knowing Him personally, Jesus Christ our Lord. And I am not saying that service is, is not important. It is very important. But it should be out of response out of your love for Him and knowing Him and drawing close to Him and having intimacy with Him is more important. It's the most important thing in our lives. And then, of course, in John chapter 11, as we look at this Mary here, we see her at that time when her brother Lazarus had died. Mary comes out to Jesus, this time not at His feet, taken in, but she's pouring out her heart to Him. Oh, Lord, if he had only been here, then my brother would not have died. And, of course, it was Jesus that would respond to Mary and Martha and said that I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me shall not die, but have everlasting life. And there is Mary just pouring out her grief and sorrow to Jesus. And here in Mark's gospel, we see her pouring out that ointment on his head. This very special, very wonderful and beautiful woman who was found at the feet of Jesus in times of happiness when Jesus was teaching, in times of sadness when her brother was dying, and in times of heaviness because, Lord, you've come to Jerusalem to die and to be buried. And she knew that is what would be happening to him. That's why she's doing this. And she takes that ointment and broke the flask and poured a whole quantity out upon him. And it was a very precious, costly ointment, usually bought from India. And when she did this, Mark tells us that some were upset that she did this. Again, John's account of this story tells us that it was Judas Iscariot that objected to this. He saw that this was actually a waste in his mind. Why? Well, let's read on, verse 5. For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they criticized her sharply. If you had a guest that would come to your house during this time in this culture, and you were one that would be able to buy a little bit of this spikenard, this ointment, and you were able to afford that, what you would do is you would take a little bit of this and you would dab it you know, on your guest that would come to you, just a little bit. But Mary here broke this little box and just poured the whole box upon the head of Jesus. And then John's narrative records that she anointed his feet and dried them with her hair. And there were those who were around, the, the disciples that are with Jesus, that are within themselves because it was worth over 300 denarius. A denarius was worth a day's wage for a laboring man. So this was very costly, just as the gospel is saying, very expensive perfume or, or spike, or, uh, this, this ointment. So it's worth almost a year's wages that is being poured out at this moment upon Jesus. Now, again, as John records in his gospel, that it was Judas that said, what a waste. This is worth nearly a year's wages, and it could have been sold and given to the poor. 
And we know that it was Judas that also was the treasurer. They, in other words, he was keeping the money bag for the group. And the scriptures tell us in John's gospel that he didn't really care for the poor, but what he was doing is he was stealing money from the money bag. He was thieving out of it. He didn't care about the poor at all. And for you who like to jot down notes, the word here for waste, if you look it up in your concordance, it has the meaning of perdition. It's the same word that Jesus would use in calling Judas the son of perdition. In other words, Judas here was saying, why is she wasting this costly ointment? Perdition. And Jesus would say concerning Judas, do you think that this is a waste, perdition? That you're the son of perdition. Your whole life is a waste. What a waste eternally. You're the son of perdition, Judas. She wasted this perfume according to you who's thieving out of the money bag. This which could have been sold for a whole lot of money. But you, Judas, your life has been wasted eternally because you're going to betray me and come against me. And here's the thing that strikes me about this that I'd like to point out to you. It was Judas that made the statement that what a waste this could have been sold to the poor. He had different motives, but it would be the others that would join in as Mark gives us for their information. And together, verse 5, as we read, they criticized her sharply. And the thing to remember is this, that Judas was not sincere at all. He had another agenda. He had a different motive. And what was that? Steal the money. He had his own agenda, and that was, I want to take the money. I don't care about the poor. I'm just going to sound spiritual. I'm going to, to make this case. But he had different agenda and different motives and a different plan. I think that the others were probably more sincere when they heard the argument that, hey, that, that's right. That kind of is a waste. I mean, did you have to use the whole box? That could have gone a long ways in caring for other people. But here's the point that I want to make. We need to be careful. Because oftentimes the one who makes the most noise can be the one that has a totally different agenda, a totally different motive than what you think they have. And Judas said this could have been given to the poor. He didn't care about the poor at all. But he was wanting to steal the money. In verse 6, but Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do to them good. But me you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. And assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Leave her alone is what Jesus says. Don't trouble her. Back off. The poor that you always have. And whatever good you want to do, you can do good. But me, you don't always have me because soon I'm going to be put to death. And verse 8, I love this. She has done what she could. I have that underlined in my Bible. And may that be a life lesson for you and for me, doing what you can do. She didn't have time at that moment because this is the last day that Jesus is going to have before he's going to have dinner with his disciples for the last time and then he's going to be arrested later that night and then he's going to go through the sufferings of the cross his hour is coming she didn't have time to make him a big feast she didn't have time to make a garment for him she said what i must do though is show my love for my lord 
And this is what she could do, and I believe that our Lord would draw our attention to that because it's very practical for us. Sometimes we say, hey, I can't do everything, and you're right. You can't do everything, but you can do some things. And what I can do, I ought to do, and this really is what the Lord asks of us. You can't do everything. You can't feed the starving world, but perhaps you might be able to feed one person or one family that is in need as you make a meal for them, as the Lord puts them on your heart. You can't comfort all of the lonely and broken and, and, and troubled hearts out there in the world, but can you bring comfort to one person that you know that's going through a rough time? Can you minister to them? Can you spend some time with them and bring in encouragement and edification of the things of God? You see, Mary did what she could do, and everywhere in Scripture, this is all God asks of us. And sometimes, as Christians, we think, well, there's never real uh, you know, opportunity for service. There are things that you can do. And you do it with the expectation that God will take it, and He's going to bless it, right? We bring what little that we have, just as we discuss in the feeding of the 5,000. We bring the, the loaves and the fishes, and the Lord will bless it, and he'll feed the, multiple, the multitude. We must fill the jars with water, but he'll turn it into wine. And what a tremendous blessing it is in our lives when we come to the point when we say that I will do what I can. Will you put on my heart, Lord? I'll go and minister to this person. I'll make a meal for that individual. I'll come to the church and I'll help do some cleaning. I'll work on the grounds. I can do that. Uh, I'll work in the nursery once a month because it's a need. I'll work with the children. You know, on Wednesday night, once in a while, I'll schedule that out. I'll let them know that I can be available, even if it is once a month. Whatever I can do, and I know that the Lord is going to bless that in your own life, and he's going to bless this congregation with that attitude of heart when you express that, doing what you can do. Because you see, too often we focus on what I can't do. I think we're going to see that lesson that we're talking about here in the life of David. David is going to want to build the Lord a house, as we're going to see here in a few weeks going through Second Samuel. And the Lord's going to come back to David and say to David, David, your hands are bloody. You're a man of war. It's going to be your son that's going to build the temple, a man of peace. And David didn't go away all discouraged and bummed out and pouting and saying, well, I guess I'm just going to sit here and not do anything because I'm not going to build a house. But he did what he could do. He wasn't going to build the temple, but you know what he did? He got all the material, you know, supplies ready to go. He got the Levites in place. He got the workers all lined up. He got everything ready to go so that when Solomon came on the scene and was ready to build the temple, then we know that everything was set up for him. He did what he could do, and that's what we are to do. Do what you can do. The things that the Lord has put on your heart, don't despise the day of small things is what the Scripture says. And even if you think, well, once a month helping with children or coming in and mowing the lawn once a month or once in a while coming in and doing some things, the Lord will take that little and he will bless it and we can say, you know what, Lord, I can do this, but the Lord desires to use all of us. And what this beautiful worshiper displays is she says, I'm going to worship you right now. And Jesus commends her. And it's interesting that Jesus said she has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. She saw what others didn't. She saw that Jesus was about to die and the disciples who had heard Jesus teaching them directly. He told them directly, as we have seen, 
that I'm going to die. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, be buried, and I'm going to be raised from the grave three days later. But they didn't get it. They're confused. She did. Why? Because she was a worshiper. Because she sat at the feet of Jesus. She is the one that poured out her love to Jesus. And those of you who sit at the feet of Jesus, those of you who are worshipers, those of you who have made it a priority in your life just to draw close to him and sense his heart and sense his mind, you're going to understand things that others don't. And Mary expressed just this this devotion to him, and then she experienced waves of blessing as she took on his fragrance as she wiped his feet with her hair. And guess what she smelled like? She smelled just like he would. She took on the same fragrance as Jesus. Paul the Apostle talks a whole lot about that in Second Corinthians, about we having the fragrance of Christ. And you see, that's what devotion does. That's what worship does. You know, sometimes people go around and they say, hey, this stinks, man. That stinks and you stink and the boss stinks and the church stinks. And You know how you change the fragrance? You know how you change your attitude? You be like Mary and be a worshiper. And you pour out your love to the Lord and you do it in your morning devotions and you do it here as we meet corporately on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights. And whenever you do that, you'll begin to see that you're going to take on a whole different fragrance. That is, your attitude is going to change. And you're going to take on the same fragrance as Jesus as you sit at his feet to know him, to give your devotion to him, to worship him. But just as she took on his fragrance as the the anointment and this perfume was poured out there in the house on Jesus, the house would be filled with the fragrance as well. So can I ask you a question? Is there a stench in your house? In other words, tempers are flaring, fighting all the time, harsh words are being spoken. How long has it been, truly, since you've had family devotions? Where you sat down as a family and you just worshiped the Lord and you got to where you got together and you began to speak about the things of the Lord and giving thanks to his name. Something happens when you do that, when you have those family devotions. When you pour out your praise, when you worship the Lord, the fragrance not only affects you, but it begins to fill the whole house. And Jesus said, wherever the gospel is spoken of, this story will be told as a memorial to her. And we continue in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. This is probably one of the saddest portions of the record of Judas. This moment right here, when he goes to the high priest, deliberately intending to find an occasion to betray the Lord. There are some Bible commentators and teachers which try to excuse Judas. They say that, well, he was just merely misled. Judas expected Jesus to usher in the kingdom, and so Judas betrayed him to try to force Jesus' hand to bring in the kingdom, and he ended up being mistaken, and he was really sorry for that. He didn't really have evil intentions at all, but this account that we just read, here in these verses 10 and 11, refutes that thinking. Judas here went deliberately to the high priest. He took the initiative with the intention of betraying Jesus. Jesus said it would have been better if he had never been born. 
And verse 12, now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent out two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? In verse 15, then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them, and they prepared the Passover. We do know from Luke's account that it was Peter and John whom the Lord sent to prepare for the Passover. And when you go into the city, Jesus said, you're going to see a man carrying a pitcher of water. Now, there was lots of people there in Jerusalem. So are there going to be a lot of men carrying pitchers of water? No, because this would be unusual because it was usually the women who carried the pitchers of water in that culture. It's still very much that way in different cultures today. When I was in southern Sudan, when we were at the compound teaching the chaplains there, there would be those in the villages that would come into a freshwater well and pump that they had, and it was always the women that were carrying the water and the pitchers of water, and they'd carry it on their heads. It was, and you'd sit there and watch them, and at first you thought, yeah, they could use some help, and the men would be kind of standing around talking, and you're kind of thinking, why aren't the men helping and carrying those you know, buckets of water and things? Well, it wasn't that way in that culture. And they just said, you've just got to kind of leave it alone. And that's the way it is, and that's their culture, and it's the women that carry the water. So here, here is Jesus saying, you're going to see a man carrying some water. That would be unusual. You need to go to him, follow him. He'll lead you to where you need to go and make those preparations to a large upper room. Now, some Bible scholars believe that this upper room here was owned by a woman named Mary. And as I said to you, there's lots of Marys in the gospel narratives. This Mary, different than the Mary that we just talked about, that just got through anointing the body of Jesus for his burial there in Bethany. Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. This Mary that perhaps owns this upper room was the mother of John Mark, the one who penned this gospel inspired by the Spirit. And it would be perhaps the same upper room that the church, early church would meet to pray together as well as the same room perhaps where the Holy Spirit filled that room on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. But be that as it may, in the evening, verse 17, he came to the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? Will you notice that as Jesus said that one of you is going to betray me, the disciples began to say, is it I? Is it me? They didn't say, aha, it's Judas over there. I know it's that Judas over there, the one with the black cape on and the shifty eyes, the hideous laugh that he has. They had no idea that it was Judas. No one suspected him at all. Matter of fact, the one who would carry the money bag was the one that they would trust the most, wasn't it? So they didn't suspect it was Judas. And all they, these guys are saying, is it I, is it me? And what intrigues me about this, that it has been a time where just a few days previously, and, and since Jesus has been making his way to Jerusalem, these guys, these disciples, have been arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Remember in chapter 9 that Jesus was asking those disciples, what are you disputing about back there on the road? As they were traveling and, and 
the disciples had stopped and they were arguing. And, and Jesus said, what are you guys arguing about back there? Jesus knew what they were arguing about. That was who was going to be the greatest. They were arguing about, I'm going to be the greatest. The other ones were saying, I'm going to be the greatest. James and John had their mother come to Jesus and said, when you come into your kingdom, can my son sit on your left and on your right? So this was a continual argument that's going to even continue to this day that I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. Arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Because Jesus at that moment was not in their midst when they were arguing there on the road. And you know, whenever Jesus is not in our midst, we start to make the case. We start to argue about how great we are and how important we are. Hey, I'm the one that really has it together. But now here, Jesus is in the midst of them. And their attitude changes. When he is there saying, there is one of you who's going to betray me. They're not saying, well, it isn't me because I'm the greatest. They're saying, is it me? Is it I, Lord? And I think that there's an important principle for us to consider this morning as we make application is simply this. That true humility will come by having intimacy and closeness with Jesus Christ. By allowing him to be in the midst of your life. If I am close to the Lord at any given moment, I'm not going to be boasting about my greatness and looking how everybody else falls short, looking at everybody else's faults, but I'm going to be aware of His incredible grace and my need for Him because of my weaknesses. If I am close to the Lord at any given moment, then I will not be putting myself above others and bragging about myself. But I am going to be humbled and realize i got a long ways to go, Lord. Isaiah the prophet, when you read the book of Isaiah in chapter 5, he's going around and he's saying, woe to you and woe to you and woe to this group and woe, woe to this group as he preached to those all around him. But then when you move into chapter 6, it says that in the year that King Uzziah died, here's Isaiah saying, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his, and his train filled the temple. In other words, he was in the midst of the Lord. And then what did he say? He said, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among people with unclean lips. You see, this is the key. Whenever I am around somebody that has a tendency and a focus and a priority, I always go around and say, woe to you and woe to you and woe to this group and complain and murmur and all of this. It's indicative to me that they're not spending much time in the presence of the Lord. Because once you're in his midst and once you see him, what you're going to say is, woe is me. Lord, I see how perfect and how holy and righteous you are, and that makes me aware of how sinful I am and how unclean and unworthy and how I need you, Lord, how I need you. It doesn't mean we don't bring correction to others or rebuke out of love to others. But when we are in the midst of the Lord, we realize how far short we come of what he wants us to be, and he's still doing a work in us. Is it I? Could I be the one that betrays you, that sells you out, Lord? That's what John was whispering. That's what James was thinking. That's what Matthew was saying. In verse 20, and he answered and said to them, It is the one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been bored. Now, this portion of Mark, telling of the Last Supper, perhaps some of you are picturing the painting of Leonardo da Vinci. 
where all the disciples are gathered around the table on one side to pose for the picture. And that's not the way it was. They were not seated around this large table, and certainly they were not seated around just one side. But in that culture, they would be laying around on, on couches, low couches that were close to the ground, and a table that sat low to the floor as well. And you would just kind of recline around the table. You would lean on your hand. Uh, uh, you know how it is at home. If you're not at the dinner table, you're just maybe kind of watching TV and you're kind of there on the couch or the kids are on the floor and, you know, leaning on their hand. That's kind of the way it was, but they were below to the floor, leaning on these pillows, these couches and stuff, and you would dip your bread into a common bowl and you would eat out of a common dishes while you were reclining. Now, we do know from John's gospel that John the apostle was leaning on the breast of Jesus, but the other side of Jesus especially close to him, was Judas. This arrangement in order that this interchange would happen there at the Lord's table. Jesus said, the one who is dipping his bread in the same dish with me is the one who will betray me. And Judas, probably on the left of Jesus, reached in with his right hand into the dish that Jesus used. He shared the same dish, and it would, Jesus at that time would say to Judas as he turned to him, Judas, what you're going to do, do quickly. And then Judas would leave the group, and then Jesus said probably the most solemn words, I think, that ever fell from his lips. And that was, it would have been better if that man had never been born. And I don't believe that Jesus was saying that with finger pointing and snarl, you know, kind of voice, but I think that he was saying it brokenheartedly. He was brokenhearted about what Judas was going to do. I want to say this, and I say this all humbly. I love to talk about the grace and the mercy of God, the forgiveness of the Lord, the hope of heaven, the love of the Lord. But what a tragic thing it is to have the Lord to say about an individual. They'd been better if they'd never been born. And yet it might also be said about everyone who has rejected Jesus Christ. It would have been better off if you'd never been born. And I say that very humbly and with concern. You see, as a teacher of the Bible, I'm going to teach all of the Bible. And I don't care how popular pastors and Bible teachers are writing books today that say we're all going to end up in bliss together. There really is no hell. There is. It's real because Jesus talked about it. And I want to say if there's anyone that's listening to this message in this sanctuary or out in a coffee shop or listening on the radio, if you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ and you have rejected him and you continue in that to when you get to the end of your life, you will wish that you were never born at all. And that's the truth. Because hell is real and it's eternal. It's a real place and it's an awful place. And sometimes I hear people say, well, when I get to hell with my friends, we're just going to have one big party. Uh-uh, it's not going to be any of that. There is separation from God. There's gnashing of the teeth, eternal fire that is spoken of. There is total isolation. Jesus, God, he created hell for Satan and his demons, the scripture says. But it is also going to be for those who have rejected his love and his grace. And if anyone is here today and you've never surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ, he loves you so much, you can know that heaven awaits you as you surrender your life to him. 
He came and died for you to take care of the sin problem. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall surely die, not just speaking physically, but eternally, spiritually as well. And Jesus came to give us life. It's a free gift. And he says, come to me. I died for you. That's why Jesus went to the cross. Because there's no other way to heaven. There's no other reconciliation with the Father. There's no other means of forgiveness of sin. But Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect Lamb of God, died for you because of his love for you. Receive his love. Surrender your heart to him. And you have the hope of heaven. It's a free gift that is given. You can't earn your way to heaven. You can't merit your way to heaven. None of us are good enough. It comes by surrendering your heart to the Lord and the Savior, Jesus Christ. And here is Judas, referred to as, what a waste, son of perdition. His life wasted, unfortunately. And Jesus is brokenhearted. It had been better that that man never been born again. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broken and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So Jesus given them a totally new understanding of the Passover ceremony. He breaks the bread. He said, This is my body broken for you. He takes the cup. He says, This is the new covenant. It's my blood, which is shed for the remission of sin. And then he said, Do this in remembrance of me. You don't just remember anymore the lamb in Egypt that was slain, the blood placed in the basin, as we read in the book of Exodus, and sprinkled upon the lintels of the doorposts of the house. But now you're to remember me. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body. This is my blood shed for you. In verse 26, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And Jesus said to him, Surely I say to you that today, even this night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, Peter is saying, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. So they sang these, these hymns as they're crossing Jerusalem, leaving the upper room. They made their way out of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, up the slopes of the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. And on their way, Jesus quotes for them from the prophet Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 7. He says, it is written, you shall fall away, just as the prophet wrote. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. Now I do want to add a quick footnote. As we look at this prophecy of Zechariah, which we will see will be fulfilled as those soldiers are going to come to the garden there. They will arrest the Lord. Disciples are all going to run away, just as Jesus said they would. They're going to flee. So this is speaking of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, and his disciples as they will take off when they come to strike the shepherd. But this verse has a secondary application because it's true for us today. One of the things that I want to remind you of is please pray for me as the shepherd of this flock. Pray for the leadership. Pray for us as, as we come together, as we desire to minister and to serve you. It's so very, very important that you pray for me and my family. Pray for the elders here. And the reason is because, you see, Satan, he knows, he knows this. 
that if he can strike the shepherd, then the sheep are going to scatter. And Satan knows that the most effective way to get to a fellowship, to a church, to a ministry, to do some real damage, is that he's going to go after the shepherd. And that's why I ask for your prayers. And I think that all of us have heard, and even some of you have probably been involved in a ministry or church where, you know, all of a sudden the shepherd is stricken. Maybe the enemy comes against them and tempting them into some sin or they get drawn into false teaching or maybe there's just upheaval that's in the church and division and all of this. And it does a lot of damage. And I ask very humbly that you would pray for me and continue to pray for us that we would continue to come together with one heart and one accord and one spirit, desiring to honor the Lord and be led by the Lord. But the enemy knows that if he can strike the shepherd, the sheep are going to scatter. And we want to be ones that we're praying for the shepherds here. We're praying for me, the under-shepherd, to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, because it's a very important ministry. So here, he says you're going to scatter, but he gives them hope. I'll be raised again. I'll go before you in Galilee. He's reassuring his disciples that after this dark time, there's going to be a glorious time when I'm resurrected, but they're still not understanding. I'll go before them as the shepherd, still guarding his flock, still watching over them. He'll meet with them again in Galilee, but in the meantime, you're all going to scatter. And of course, that's where Peter speaks up, and he says, hey, if all these are made to stumble, I won't. And Jesus said, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. You're so sure of yourself, Peter. He says, they and you, Peter, are going to stumble. Peter pipes up and says, not me, Lord. Uh-uh. He's very quick to point out, oh, these other guys will, but not me. No way I'm going to. I'm going to die with you, Jesus. There are going to be four crosses up there on Calvary tomorrow. And so they all start to pipe up, and they all start saying, that's right, we're all going to die with you. And, and I believe that Peter, in saying this, is sincere, but as we look at him, we know that, and as we read the story, he's going to fail. And the failure that he's going to experience in denying the Lord is a failure of the weakness of his flesh. You know, that can happen to you and to me. We start to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, boasting in ourselves, and we make, you know, all these rash vows and promises to the Lord. And as you look at Peter's life, think about this. Peter was a very brave individual, wasn't he? He was brave. I mean, he got out of the boat and he walked on water there at the Sea of Galilee when there was a storm. That took a lot of courage for Peter to do that. Jesus said, come to me, Peter, and Peter stepped out. And I think about that. I would have been very hesitant to because you step out, you're going to go down. That's it. You're done for. Peter is the only human beside Jesus to walk on water. So it took a lot of faith and, and courage for Peter to step out of that boat in the water. We're going to see that Peter, next time that he's there in the garden, he's going to take out a sword and he's going to cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. That was a very brave thing to do because if Jesus had not healed that man's ear, Peter would have been in big trouble. So Peter displays great courage, but where did he fail? We're going to see that he's going to be afraid of a little girl. I'm going to leave you with this this morning. So oftentimes we can feel so strong in an area, and those are the very areas that we can fail in. Why? Because we're not giving those areas to the Lord. And we're thinking, Lord, my marriage, when it comes to my family, comes to my kids, when it comes to my business, whatever it might mean for you, I got it together. You know, I got it under control, and we're not truly giving it to the Lord, and we think we're so strong, and then over time what will happen if we are not careful, 
because we're relying on our own understandings, we're relying on our own energies and our own flesh, we end up failing in that area. Is there an area in your life that you're saying, Lord, I won't fail in this area, I won't fall in this area, I got everything under control. May we be ones that say, Lord, I need you in every area of my life. Lord, give me your strength and blessing in that area. And you will do that I can never do on my own. Give every area of your life to him. Don't hold anything back. And trust that the Lord is going to carry you through and keep you. Trust in the Lord that he's going to bless you. And Father, we